all CEOs, me included, we don't actually know what we're doing. They're all sharks, so all you got to do, though, is no shark bait. I don't think we've ever talked about this before. <laughs> we can capture all of the wallet share. First place you start is with the product. That's just the first nut. This is the Capital Stack. Hey, everybody, this is David Paul, the host of the Capital Stack podcast, where I talk to entrepreneurs, founders, operators, and investors about all things value creation in startups. Today, I am talking to a good friend and colleague of mine, Aaron Charlesworth of Georgia, who is the uh, was it CMO now? Yeah, I uh, run marketing, product, and a little bit of everything at a place called Desk Pass right now. Excellent, excellent. At Desk Pass, uh, Aaron is a uh, true, tried and true marketing um, operator uh, located out of Atlanta, Georgia, who literally is the biggest you know, marketing tech hub, probably the United States. And Aaron has earned his stripes there at at several companies, uh, including OnSolve, Space IQ, Voxy, and now at DeskPass. Um, so, Aaron, how you doing today? I'm doing well. Um, you know, I don't know, nervous, looking forward to it. You never know what these discussions are going to go down. So you just try to sound intelligent. It's going to get weird. Yeah, well, I don't mind that. I'm good <laughs> at weird. So, <laughs> Well, let's start off being weird. What's, what's going on with the terrariums behind you? <laughs> so, um, probably about six years ago, my wife came home from visiting a friend and said, um, look what I got. And it was this poor bearded dragon who had been abused and, um, very poorly taken care of that a friend of hers got And Um, his name was Loki. And so I, uh, I got him and he just wasn't going to make it, but I gave him the best six weeks of what remained of his life. And um, for some reason, I just fell in love with him. So I have more reptiles now. I've got uh, three bearded dragons, three snakes, a uh, uh, crested or a gargoyle gecko, and I think a blue tongue skink that's on its way. And uh, a blue tongue, just- a blue tongue skank. Is that what you said? Skink. Oh, skink. skink. Okay. Yep. Um, it's a little hard to describe. You'll have to look it up. But uh, they're the best pets in the world. They they actually are way more affectionate than people know. And everybody's terrified of snakes for all the wrong reasons. And so I love them. They're great. That's so. awesome. That's awesome. I was uh, really obsessed about getting a fish tank. Uh, <laughs> and went down a rabbit hole. A lot of YouTube videos. And then... You know, like the tank just got bigger and bigger in my head. And, you know, and then I, I was like, this is just unmanageable. I tried fish once. I, I found them really hard. You know, they, they were so finicky in a way. If your house got too cold or the water was off, all of a sudden you had dead fish. And um, I'm pretty good at lizards and reptiles. They're pretty hardy. So as long as you don't mind a little bit of weird feeding here and there, like cockroaches <laughs> and dead mice, <laughs> which doesn't really bother me. But no. Um, so tell me a little great. bit, Aaron, tell me about your marketing journey and how you became such a marketing stud. <laughs> well, I'm not sure I would go that far, but um, so, you know, my journey into marketing 
started all the way back. Well, I got out of graduate school in 99, which, you know, if you were kind of navigating through the dot-com world was um, kind of the worst possible time. But in a way, I got hugely lucky because I went to a small company that did sales enablement trading, and I was going to do market research, marketing work, and that kind of thing. And um, I think I was there all of three weeks. And then as you probably would laugh, David, because you've probably seen it a million times, suddenly a huge company came in and bought the whole thing and everybody's uh, world was sort of upside down. But we got bought by Siebel Systems. And if you don't know who Siebel Systems were, are, they were the kind of the original founders of CRM. Mm -hmm. And but they were big iron CRM on premise. And so going through dot-com evolution, they, um, they sort of got eaten alive by Salesforce. You know, Salesforce came along and was sort of that cloud pioneer of why doing business in the cloud and putting apps in the cloud was better, more cost effective and really ate Siebel's lunch. And, um, I would say all the way back then was, uh, sort of the genesis of it. It started with the need to pay attention to the market. You could have all the good marketing ideas that you wanted and you could run good search and you could do all these things. But if you didn't pay attention to what was happening around you, it didn't really matter how good the marketing was, you were going to get run over. And then as I sort of incorporated that into my process, um, what you found was it actually taught you the better ways to market too. So you could not only watch what the competition was doing from like a product and evolution standpoint, but as you were doing that, it was really easy to see the things that where marketing was successful. Um, I like to tell people that I think you, when you go to school to study marketing, there's this dream that it's all about, great where's the beef commercials and stuff like that and you're going to do amazing things and I, I think I've demoralized a lot of young marketers over the years by saying the answers are often in the data and in the simplest places you can have the greatest tagline in the world but if you don't understand where people are looking for it it's not going to do you any good and so, uh, you know, went to a place called CDC Software where we really built that marketing engine from the ground up and uh, when I left Siebel and just was able to start applying that kind of thinking, watch the market, study, look at what's available, look at what tactics are paying out and pay really close attention to um, the return on investment from a marketing perspective. And it, and what you found was if you watched the numbers and you watched the market and you looked at the competition, the answers kind of presented themselves to you. And where it all kind of... I would say came to fruition was I went to a, 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 a small company called OmniLink for a while and did product and marketing work there. And then went to a company called Vocalocity, which is where I met Wayne. And, I'm sorry, I met Wayne at OmniLink. Wayne went to Vocalocity and invited me to come there and run marketing. And it was this very fast paced generating 3,000 leads a month, converting to 1,000 new customers a month. And it was sort of this culmination of all those study the market, understand what's happening, watch every dollar. And it just sort of came together for us in this sort of beautiful moment where 
marketing and then this wonderful sales execution machine built by Kyle Johnson really just drove the whole thing forward. And it, it was like, I don't know, about that was probably about 10 years after I got out of school, David. And it, it just was this sort of culmination of all those thoughts and happenings together. And it really worked. Um, and that was kind of where the recipes were born, I guess. And then it was, in a lot of ways, rinse, repeat, and adjust in small ways. But once you found things that worked in certain markets, they sort of just take off on their own. You know, there's not, I don't, I don't know, you have social media now, you had search 10, 20 years ago. There hasn't been a ton of massive revolutions in, you know, the mediums for marketing messaging. So you just adjust and nudge here and there and you find that those uh, the same formulas tend to work over and over again. Being a, um, a marketing operator and working with founders, do you feel like there's a proclivity to spend first and then look at the data versus looking at the data that's already available? <laughs> that's a great question. Um, my experience with founders and uh, is that they want to spend and figure out why the heck the results didn't show up the second they spent. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's the thing. Um, I think that there's this belief that I built something great. So many founders look at it and say, I built this amazing thing. How can people not love it? And if I just put the word out, the the billions are going to come rolling in, right? I'm going to get this massive return for myself and my investors. And so the the biggest thing with um, founders is I don't think in a lot of ways, if they go it on their own, they look at anything. They just say, I've, I've built the greatest mousetrap that anyone ever saw. And if I just tell someone, everybody's going to buy it. And then they go spend that first hundred, 200, 300 grand and fall flat on their face. And then they end up bringing in someone like me and that, who says, okay, well, let's look at what traffic numbers look like. Let's look where people are congregating. What conferences do they go to? All these things. And then you build out a plan and then you test the plan and then you evaluate what are my best payoff channels. You invest more into those channels until you reach the, the capacity of the channel and then you pick the next best channel up to the point at which you don't have money to spend anymore. Um but I, my experience, um, it sounds so easy. Why is this such a difficult concept for founders? Well, yeah, or businesses the reason it's general. hard is because people are fickle, right? Right. The, the, the methods apply, but sometimes David, like the decisions people make in the market, you've probably seen this more than I have. They just don't make sense. Mm-hmm. Right. There are these times where someone genuinely has built a better mousetrap and no one cares. You know, totally. it's like you put that information out there and you use the formula and they and people just go, I don't care. I'm just not going to pay for it right now. And I've read those stories. I've watched it happen to people. I told you I was going to buy it when you came to me, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's the that, I mean, that's the classic one, right? For a marketer is you get somebody to talk to you and, and they'll tell you all day long that they're their product or that you've built the greatest mousetrap in the world. But it's the, it's the same thing I said about when you raise money until the check is in the bank and is maybe baked for a week. Don't count on the fact that you won, you know. So 
It's, they're just, sometimes people are highly, highly unpredictable, no matter what the data will tell you. And I I also would say, to answer the question, David, I I do think there's a lack of patience, Mm. right? Um, I I got to know back at Space IQ, um, a a person named Nye Cannell, um, she ran the marketing team. She was actually the CMO at Space IQ. And I got to know her when she got there, uh, when when Archibus and Cerevue acquired Space IQ. And just a brilliant young marketer, um, does amazing work. But you would find that she, you know, the recipe that was invented, and she and I talked about this all the time, it doesn't just turn on overnight. You know, people always forget that if you want quality search rankings with Google from an, an SEO perspective, it can take months. And you have to lay the foundations. You have to have good content. You have to have a good experience on the website. You know, nothing worse than I drove traffic, people showed up, and my website stunk, and they couldn't find what they needed. So I guess you can describe the model easily, but the model still has a lot of parts. And if you don't put the parts in place in the right way, you'll have these leakage points, and the return won't be what you expect. And then that makes your data look bad, right? Oh, this channel isn't very good after all, so let's give up on it type thing. Mm-hmm. But I would say application of the recipe and patience is the recipe for is the true recipe for success. Yeah. Um, so if we were to say, look at the recipe, and because knowing that the recipe, you need to have patience with the recipe because you need to understand methodically like that, the ingredients in the recipe are working or not working. So where do you layer like importance with resources with an early stage company? Let's say that's building a marketing plan from zero. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I think you, I feel like I'm going to keep saying that over and over again. Do people that do these say that all the time, David? It's a great question. Great question. Um, <laughs> well, I ask great questions. It's I mean, like you've is, never asked a bad one, have never. you? Never. Right? Yeah. I say, um, I say stupid shit, but I ask good questions. <laughs> <laughs> I always looked at it as, um, it kind of had three streams in my mind. Um, one was you always have to worry at, about building the technology. You know, I always advocated hire on staff a really good solid marketing operations person, somebody that can help you get your marketing automation tools, CRM, all those types of things set up correctly from the beginning, or you won't get the data you're looking for. You won't be able to capture information. Um, So that was sort of the first work stream. The second was you had to think a lot about content. So if you don't have something meaningful to say, even if you have the greatest widget, again, people don't care. You know, it just, they are not going to come just because you believe that they should. And so then you got to build a content engine and there's a lot of interesting economical ways to do that. I think sometimes people worry that that's really hard to write enough material and it's something you can actually outsource in a really simple way. Um, and then you have to build the program piece. And the programs are usually the things that you would think of as the traditional marketing tactics like search. And you might do email marketing. When we were back at Vocalocity, 
Um, it was probably the last place that I did this, but we actually made direct mail pay in a profitable way. Mm-hmm. So you just you have to put all three of those into flight at the same time, or you'll come out the back end with results and you you know, if you didn't set up the technology right, you won't have captured data well. So then you won't be able to refine the the programs. And then if you don't have that data on the programs and you could A-B test against content to see which is better, then you'll have that flaw in the model. So you have to, there is no one place. If I was going into a place that had zero marketing today, you know, those are the three work streams I would start on. And I would generally put um, the marketing operations as like a, a full-time employee you would try to hire the marketing, some type of marketing programs, resources, a full time. And then the content you can often source across your organization. You don't necessarily have to have a content writer, content strategist right out of the gate. Um, I'm trivializing certain things like you still have to have graphics and brand and website and all those things. But those are typically things early on that I would look out to sort of the expert market on from a contractor basis. You're generally not going to hire um, a graphic designer on staff right away, unless you have some type of graphics heavy product needs and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, thinking about all this it just makes me realize that like how difficult a discipline marketing is because there's just so many different facets and so many different um, uh, disciplines that that a person needs to know to make it work. And when you're under-resourced, it becomes very, very challenging. So would you agree or disagree? Well, I would hugely agree, but the the problem it creates – you know, I hate that phrase, tip of the spear. It's more like top of the funnel, right? The hard thing for every startup is how to allocate resources to build momentum over time, I think. So a lot of times you write the plan. And again, like David, this is probably stuff you've seen even more than I have. You see these business, pr- the proposals, and everybody says, I'm going to hire 50 salespeople and I'm going to you know, get 28 engineers and all these things. And But at the end of the day, if you don't do the marketing piece first and really focus there and get that right up front, then you're going to have 58 salespeople just sitting going, what should I do? And then immediately you fall back to, well, let's have them start making cold calls. Mm -hmm. And so then you say, okay, well, I need a list. So what's the first thing they do? Let's go ask marketing for a list because they know the best people to call. <laughs> right. Where's the list? Okay. Yeah. So then the marketing team of one shows up and says, well, here's a spreadsheet. Why don't you start calling them? And then what do they say? Well, what should I say? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Well, here's a sc- here's scripting. Here's, here's key points. Okay. Do you have any follow-up material I can send them? And then you say, okay, well, here's emails and here's white papers. Well, suddenly when you have an invested Uh, at the true top of the funnel, you started by investing in the middle. Then you took what resources you did have to try to fill the funnel and you went down to this low return tactic, right? Cold calling is good, but it's brutally hard. It's Mm -hmm. time uh, uh, intensive. It's expensive. It's expensive. 
people don't answer the phone, you know, and there are certain industries where you can make it work, but it shouldn't be the first tactic you go to. But to your question about founders, I think it's the first one they think about a lot of the time. And it goes back to that thing of, oh, if you just tell them, if they just hear that I've got a better mousetrap, then all will be okay. And so I think that's kind of its own trap is everybody thinks if I have a salesperson, we're all going to get rich. And if you don't build the top of the funnel first, it's just going to fall apart. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you really just need to make sure, especially when you're in a momentum-based business, it's like just fill it up. The, the sales cycle is going to take the sales cycle, right? As long as you're continually worried about top of the funnel and the marketable database, um, mm -hmm. you know, there, there should be some, some movement going through the engine. Oh, it's like I always said to people, I've never been in a company. Um, Vocalocity got bought by Vonage, and I would say Vonage maybe is the exception to this. But, you know, I was never big on spending a ton of money on sort of brand development because I always felt like you couldn't spend enough, right? Like mm -hmm. I, I remember when we got bought by Vonage, they had this – I met the CMO there, and she was telling me that Vonage had spent $2 billion since the hit start of the company – on um, brand development. And then like people Jesus. then got yeah. to know the woo-woo, woo-woo, <laughs> right? So, but that cost $2 billion. And here I am in marketing, you know, I think in our heyday at Vocalocity, we were spending a million bucks a month on Google. And that was like unheard of in my world. Like that's $12 million a year. And here she's talking about a brand budget of 2 billion. But what I always found was, if you got that flywheel going, you built that sort of viral brand marketing, that referral brand marketing. You know, you didn't have Super Bowl ads and you didn't have fancy jingles or where's the beef, but you had enough momentum where you could go to, um, you could start to deploy other highly cost effective uh, marketing tactics like referral programs. Right. Um, in certain industries, people love to send you their friends and family for 50 bucks. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, in the world of Google, the paid search ad that actually turns into deals could cost you five, six thousand dollars per mm -hmm. deal. And when you call somebody up and say, hey, your friend Tim got fifty dollars for giving you, you'd be shocked how often people sign up. Mm -hmm. So, and, and I do think things like those referral programs can work across all kinds of industries. Mm -hmm. Got it. And how do you how do you uh, judge the importance for early stage companies on market positioning of product? You're, are you asking David sort of like the product market fit question? I'm asking like how does like how do you position your company into like uh, it, in reference to the competitors within the market uh, and how you're different. Yeah, you ask your customers and you ask the market. You don't ever try to figure it out yourself because you'll get it wrong nine out of ten times. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it, it, like, if you think about it, the number of times that somebody just, you know, nails it right out of the gate by saying, we're this and we're going to be that and everybody's going to want some, very low. What I always found is investing in that competitive intelligence, market awareness, you know, customer feedback early on always pay dividends because if you can get people will tell you they're great 
or your grade. They'll always, because they're, you know, most people it's, don't want It's happy be. years, right? I mean, founders, all they want to hear is that, that, that bias, yeah. that, they're, that they're doing the right thing. Yeah, and, con- and no matter what you think of, you know, the world today, most people don't want to get on the phone and be a jerk to you. They like they don't want to get on the phone and say, "David, your your Marvel comic stuff looks really dumb behind you." You know, they they not they don't <laughs> want to be that way. And so, the, if you can take their willingness to talk and really get down to the root of what do they need and why did they talk to you in the first place, they're going to tell you all the answers. Because if you, you know, think about um, like when I was at OnSolve, you think about selling an um, emergency mass notification system. The need in one county is not significantly different than the need in the other county. Or if it's a Fortune 100 company that's looking to sell or to put in place an employee notification solution, the needs at one are not hugely different than the needs at the other. So... You can guess and hope you get it right, and or you can take a beat and go and talk to the people that are going to buy it from you, and generally you can tease out that information. So th- that's probably the biggest thing that helps you focus positioning is competitive intelligence program, uh, customer feedback, market awareness. NPS can be a great thing for it. You can do so. I mean, like so many tools today that you can use for your own surveying the data it's limitless. You just got to take the time to do it. And I don't know. I think one of the flaws is it goes back to that. I just know better. I have a friend of mine today and I'm not going to mention the company. He's head of marketing and his biggest frustration is that uh, they have a good product, but the, the head of the company, the inventor of the product is so steadfast on, but this was my dream. This is what it was that as they're going out listening to the market, they're not adjusting and now they're laying off people and the, and they're not winning deals. And if they would just have flexibility in that, I think all those answers are available. You just got to pay attention to it. That, that's like a, how I would solve the position or a guide to on how to ask like discovery questions that aren't biased. Um, I mean, you can go and Google a million of them. The, the, the answer I'm going to give you for that is not a great one for startups, but wherever possible, pay people that are experts in doing that interview process. You know, there, are ser- okay. there are services like, um, I've used one in the past called primary intelligence that was truly exceptional. And they give you this amazing readout. And there really is... Um, there's a skill to knowing what question to ask next. Um, because if you're, if you're asking someone about your product, I think there's this natural tendency to ask them what they like and then ask them what's better and better and better. And that's not really what you want to know. You want to know all about them and what's going wrong in their world. And so I, I think there's this very special skill of being able to do that. Um, you know, another source of good information like that that doesn't necessarily cost you an incremental dollar is that really great salespeople are exceptional at that, mm-hmm. right? A really great salesperson. I've never sold a thing in my life. I never should because I'd give it to you for free because you would smile if I do. But really great salespeople who love the art of that deal and the, the negotiation they have this way of teasing that out of you 
right? Mm-hmm. Right. Really great salespeople will tell somehow learn everything they need to know to, for you to buy from them. And you didn't even know you did it. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think if you build that quality relationship with your sales team and you can identify those sort of star players on the sales team, I think you can get it. Um, I think the other uh, piece of advice I would give is um, tools like Wingman um, call recording, Mm. right? So Mm -hmm. record every sales call that ever happens. You know, there's a million plugins, there's a million tools to do it. Record every one of them because if you take the time, I used to do this when I was running product, product marketing at um, Space IQ. Everybody was required to listen to 30 minutes of recorded sales calls a day. It's the best thing I ever did there because mm-hmm. this is a you know product marketing pre-selling team who has to go out and talk to people. Best source of information is listening to what they said in other conversations. So I would definitely invest in those tools. So you don't have to spend a fortune. And sometimes you find, you know, your sales leader is probably going to implement the call recording solution anyway. If they're not, <laughs> as a marketer, you might want to have to wonder how your success is going to go. I don't know how any sales leader could survive without it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, look at those tools, look at those kind of things and I do think that there's still value in that old-fashioned road trip, David. You know, that customer, I'm going to go out and meet with 25 customers in 25 different cities. It's expensive. It takes time. But if you have good, dedicated, loyal customers that are willing to let you talk to different members of the team, especially if it's a complex solution, I think that's where all the answers lie. What are the best tools that you know for an early stage company on a budget and and i would say tools and follows like who's like the the probably i mean everyone talks about jason lemkin i don't know if he's good or bad i'm not an operator so i don't follow him right i'm an investor but like who who really is tried and tested that you feel is just really giving great advice and and um and what what tools do you think in market are great for intelligence and discovery the funny thing is I'm going to totally let you down on this one because I'm going to admit something that um, uh, I can answer the tool. The tool is quality marketing automation system and then the call recording things like Wingman. Mm-hmm. Primary it. intelligence is another good one. Um, the other, Another one you that I think anybody should think about, especially if you run a website, is things like LogRocket, Hotjar, stuff mm-hmm. like that, full story. Mm-hmm. Um uh, when I'm at DeskPass today, one of the best things that I do is I watch the click paths of people going through our tool trying to make meeting room and desk reservations. And you can literally just sit there and you can watch. You can find the holes in your application because you'll watch them. They hit it. And then mm-hmm. suddenly the session ends. Um, so anything that lets you you know, watch from behind the scenes what they're doing, I think, is an exceptional uh, investment. Um on the other one, I'm going to totally let you down, though, David, because if I had to tell you any one thing that is probably the I don't know if it's a weakness or not. I've just never done it. I don't read business books. I don't study blogs. I you know I don't follow the popular press of this is the, the marketing um, thing. Well, of that the might day. serve you because you're doing as opposed to absorbing content that might just be putting you in a circle. 
Yeah, I never thought of it that much. I just, you know, I had a job. I had a lot of problems to solve in these small companies. You know, you invest in startups. That, like, you know, there's a billion problems to solve. Mm-hmm. It's it's how I found my own career evolving so much out of just marketing. You know, you, if you're smart and you can learn, somebody says, hey, can you fix this issue? I remember... When I first met Wayne Kellum, uh, he hired me at OmniLink, and we had got this opportunity with the Alzheimer's Association, and we were going to build this GPS cellular tracking solution to help people with Alzheimer's. And I was sitting in the executive meeting one day, and we were talking about this great deal we just signed. And it was really easy to sit there and realize this project wasn't making progress. And I went to Wayne afterwards. I said, Wayne. I'm just the marketing guy, but I think if someone doesn't fix that thing and get it ready, we're going to have a big problem. So I think I can fix that and go do it. And he said, Aaron, go make it happen. And I got to build this amazing product that I, you know, I wasn't a product management person, but you get in there and you figure it out. And we built a great product that helped people. Um, I remember Wayne was on ABC Nightly News with Charlie Gibson. I watched it with my kids. My kids were like, you built that, Dad? (laughs) You just jump in and you solve problems. And, you know, if I was going to learn anything or study material, it wouldn't be someone's book. It would be how do AdWords really work? I don't need to... I don't need market gurus to tell me that. I just got to go on and watch some YouTube stuff. Like get in mm-hmm. there and do the work and you will learn what works and what doesn't. With any luck, you work for people in a team that are okay with the things that don't. And I've mentioned him a couple times. You know, Wayne, I've had the unbelievable honor of working with him a couple different places. I can, Wayne never liked failure, but understood that it was part of the process. Right. And that's how you learn. That's how you figure out the next best thing. And so I can't I can't give you tools. My answer, if people say, what things should I read? I mean, you look at my bookshelf. I read (laughs) what I enjoy because that helps me be more focused when it comes time to do the hard work. What are you Um, reading back there? Oh, man. I (laughs) I have books and books. I've got five of these size bookshelves in my room. in this room alone. Um, I read a lot of science fiction. I read fantasy. Um, there's some great young adult authors out there. I love, um, some of my favorite books are, um, what you would consider modern comedy in a way. Um, Mm. lesser known people like Christopher Moore, probably my favorite author, but, um, I will read anything. I, (laughs) I once told somebody that, yeah, my analytical side made me sit down one day and calculate how many hours I thought I had left in, in on Earth, and and I had to calculate the number of books I figured I could read, and it was like six thousand two hundred before I, you know, my guess was I was going to die at eighty five, and I never wanted to read a book that I didn't enjoy. You know, that's so. a really good kind of anecdote because there's so many books I read that I don't like. <laughs> Well, you know what always made me sad because I love books so much, David, is um, it's such a limited thing. It, it, it's you know how you watch your kids grow up and that makes time feel fleeting. Books do that to me because I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, man, I just don't have five more minutes. I don't have five mm-hmm. more minutes. And I don't know. I just have always found that 
um, the more things that I do like that, the more creative I am. I'm a serial hobbyist. I've tried more hobbies than you can shake a stick at because I think it helps you think creatively, try different things. It, It makes it, you know, you have a recipe, but you also know that the recipe has to change. I think it served me well. Since you like fantasy, did you see the new Dungeons and Dragons movie? Uh, my son did. Absolutely loved it. It's amazing. Um, I haven't seen it yet. My wife, Allie, and I are going to go. But, see, I'm old. Like, I, I'm like an original Dungeons and Dragons kid. I remember the original red boxes. Like, this is, mm-hmm. it's funny how you reach that moment in time where you're like, the modern movie is nostalgia to me, <laughs> you know. Um, but, no, I haven't seen it. My son did. He absolutely loved it. But it's funny how it's made a comeback, though. My son's 18, and they have a whole crowd that they play D&D with online now. It's just Yeah, I think you could actually, like, chat GPT Dungeon Master now. Like, it's pretty interesting. Oh, I hadn't seen that one. I mean, and if you think about it, it's perfect, right? Yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> it really perfect is perfect. Sense. It's a perfect product for that. Yeah, yeah. It'll be interesting to see all the ones that come out that, you know, that the ways people are going to make money off that are just beginning to yeah. be thought of and they're going to rise and fall so fast. Totally. Yeah. We're early in the hype cycle for that, but I'm, I'm very bullish on the fact of the deflationary aspects of all of those kind of generative technologies. Do you think anyone's doing it well so far? I'm using Jasper um, mm-hmm. for blog writing. Do you know that one? Um, I don't, I have messed around with a few of like the content creation tools. A lot of the self-service stuff that you do really will, it can give you a fine start still requires a little polishing. I I think it's great. Um, because it, it prevents you from like looking at the blank screen for, for a long time and you can get things done quicker. Um, Mm -hmm. it can take what you write and kind of make it much more readable, right? As Mm -hmm. opposed to just like a spell check and grammar function, it can just say, okay, this really just doesn't flow right. And it can actually change it. And I think that's really great because I've got a lot to say. I mean, whether it's valuable or not is, (laughs) you know, it's, it's, it's if you enjoy saying it doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. But, um, I think it's making a, um, making my, my content better. I mean, I, I, I wrote just a a piece on the nursing shortage issue and the technologies that are attacking that. Mm-hmm. And the Wall Street Journal called me and they want to talk about it. And I didn't Very dare cool. say that the, that the AI wrote most of it. But. <laughs> <laughs> they just got you started. They nudged yeah, you. They, they nudged got me you. started. Exactly. Yeah. We've had some really fascinating one. And I wonder if you'll see, I think you'll start to see a lot of this in the companies that you're involved with. Because um, I run the product organization here. I say that it's all of me, but I guess I'm in charge of myself sometimes. Um but I do, when you're sort of product of a person of one, you do get very, very involved in the engineering side. And I'm very lucky at Despass to have a great group of engineers that include me. But we had an amazing discussion around the uh, ChatGPT's ability to write effective code. Yeah, you know, it, I, hear it it's, I hear it. I hear it's exceptional. Oh, it uh, to the point where, and I was really excited to watch our engineers do this, you you know, you read a lot of stories right now of people terrified. It's going to take my job. It's going to take my seat. I actually, I, I'm very encouraged by how they look at it. Is it's just going to make my seat even more effective mm-hmm. because it didn't. It doesn't produce things that are straight off the page usable. But it was interesting to watch it give them ideas on ways to solve totally. problems. And um, I, you know, 
I'm I'm a big believer that technology do, you don't slow it down. You can like you can be uh, scared of it. You can be sad about it. Whatever. But once it leaves the gate, it's going. Yeah. It's too it's too to, late, right? Yeah, like you can't you can't hold this back. You, you we have no. to run at it. Especially like China's working on it now too. So we definitely need to like get in front of it. Yeah, I think it's exciting though. I I think there's some challenges i do a lot of art and creative stuff i there's some challenges on that side of the equation you know great artists because it's taking that compendium of everything that came before to create something next like if you well like use the comics if you said go write me a, draw me a great comic it's going to use all those things that have been drawn before to draw the next thing and so i think there's some interesting um you know uh intellectual property, creative property things that'll come up, but it's like everything else. People will navigate it. Businesses are going to find great ways to use it. Someone's going to find a way to use it badly and write <laughs> even worse spam emails than they do today. So. <laughs> yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of that. Yeah. Awesome. Thank Aaron. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate no, it's it. It's my pleasure, David. Uh, so with that I will end and if you like this episode please share tell a friend we're on all major platforms YouTube Spotify and Apple and we'll see you next week thanks thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content remember to support this show by rating reviewing and subscribing David Paul is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast.